0: We're discussing the Chief Marketing Officer role with two CMOs from very large organizations. Suzanne Kunkel, she is the Chief Marketing Officer of Deloitte, and Norm DeGreve, who is the Chief Marketing Officer of CVS Health. Welcome, both of you. Suzanne, please tell us about uh, your role as CMO of Deloitte and tell us about Deloitte.
1: We're the largest professional services organization in the U.S., um, but a little bit about what Deloitte means, so that it'll you'll sort of see the way it might color some of my answers to the questions. I'm obviously a B2B CMO. Um, we have about 120,000 people in the U.S. and about 330,000. So Norm and I would share, um, you know, a very big employee base. We serve clients, helping them solve their, you know, most complex set of business challenges, as well as stepping into opportunities and shaping their industries and um, functional areas. So, because of that, we have a very wide set of capabilities and services that we offer to the marketplace. Norm DeGrev, tell
0: us about CVS Health and your role as the chief marketing officer.
2: Most people know CVS because they know our stores. 10,000 pharmacies across the country, uh, within a few miles of most of the people in the country. And that is a big part uh, of our business, uh, a very important part of our business. It is also less than half of our business. Uh, And what many people don't know is that we play in a lot of areas of the, the healthcare space. So, for example, we own Aetna, the insurance company we own Caremark which is a pharmacy benefits management company that helps control the costs of medication for companies and people uh, and we own a few other companies and uh, it's actually taken us to become the the largest healthcare company in the US and uh, just last week uh, fortune said we were the number 4 company on the fortune 500 we're for blending technology and, and human interaction in order to make healthcare easier for people and so my job as a CMO, is to be that voice of the consumer, and to make sure that we're building the products and services that consumers want to engage in, so that they become healthier, better for them, better for us, of course, uh, and then make sure that they're aware of those services, so that they go to those services uh, first. And so, it's uh, that's what I do every day.
0: Suzanne, the CMO role has been changing. It's Pieces of it have been almost kind of overlapping with the chief information officer, and we have chief digital officers. So, really, today, 2021, how, how do you define the scope of the CMO role?
1: The modern CMO basically has four facets to their job. Um, the first is uh, certainly growth driver, and that's changed pretty dramatically over a period of time. We've talked about a lot about that um, with the CMO reset of responsibilities, but that is, you know, absolutely a thousand percent true today. Um, we definitely think that a part of the CMO role is um, as an innovation. Catalyst um, and specifically about digital, you know, Norm talked about how dramatically technology is changing all of our businesses um, and it certainly has changed the face of what we do as marketers. Um, Obviously, brand storyteller and bringing creative to light and, and being the face of the organization, both internally and externally, is a big part of the CMO role. Um, and last but not least is the capability builder right, making sure that we're doing the things that we can do um, with uh, the CFO watching to get the highest return on the investments we make in marketing.
0: Norm, I'm sure that you have some thoughts as well on this this this, this the scope of the role today. I probably
2: anchor a little bit more on the first one, which is uh, to to create customer driven growth. Uh, though I think every element you said there is exactly exactly right i you know most companies uh, go through and kind of my my view m- you know a few different stages you know you you start by uh, finding an unmet need in the marketplace you create a product or service to to meet it it's quite an entrepreneurial sort of idea then they go to the next stage of of they say they have these customer relationships and what else can they sell to them and so now you've got um, uh, kind of a, a, a a marketing mindset and innovation mindset there as well, and then many companies are really in this third stage, which is how do you drive operational profits out the company that you've built and the relationships that you have. And if I look at that curve, you know, in each stage, marketing plays a really important role. Certainly at the beginning, that's that is what marketing does: we find an unmet need in the marketplace and we help create a product or service to meet it. In the second stage, we're really helping to figure out what else could we do to help those customers. But really importantly, in these big companies that are um, really focused on operational efficiencies with with an analytic mindset, very important, lots of value in this area, the marketer's job is to make sure that the company is also creating these products and services to meet unmet needs in the marketplace so that it can drive the next iteration of growth. So, like I said, I like the way you said it because I think that's a bit of customer-driven growth and a bit of innovation and a bit of capabilities as well. And you had one other one in there, I forgot it, but I, I like them all. I thought that was right. But we it can feel a little different uh, sometimes sitting at the executive table because many people in that executive table are driving the operations and the finances and what's happening. And the marketer's job is to be a bit of that outside perspective to say, where where do we have to go and why should we go there and make sure that the company is focused on their on their customers?
1: The thing I would add, Michael, in response to your question is the CMO in the C-suite is, in my opinion, an important voice. And The thing that you need to do to land that the best is to make sure that you're at the highest intersection point between not forgetting that you do have unique superpowers and that is the reason why you're in the C-suite, but also knowing that it is the set of capabilities that, as a general rule, most of the executives are least comfortable with. So You really have to be able to land your message in a way that can be heard. From the various viewpoints, and I think that's something that um, you know CMOs are trying to very actively, you know, bridge that gap with respect to language and metrics, and um, you know, being able to, um, you know, kind of talk about the impact they're having through the eyes of the business.
2: That point is really, really important, and um, like I found. So, for example, I started part of my career in management consulting, and I lean on that skill set an awful lot in the C suite because. It enables me to speak the language that the other executives are speaking and to connect with them. Now, what's also important is to is for me to realize the importance of creativity and bring, and bring that forth. But if you just go in and talk about creativity, they're not exactly sure what to do with you. And at the same time, there's somebody sitting next to you who has uh, a bunch of ideas with exact profit dollars that can be driven. And so you have to do both. Now, what I also see happening is, to your point, so then the marketer wants to speak the business language, and where has that taken us? That, that's taken us to, I want to talk about ROI. ROI is an efficiency metric. It is not a business outcome. <laughs> and I think, actually, there's been uh, uh, too much of a focus for, on ROI versus actually incremental profit dollars at a reasonable rate of return. Why are we focused on the rate of return versus the total profit dollars that we're, that we're bringing in? So, um, so I think in some ways we've had an overcorrection in marketing to focus on a metric that actually has harmed the growth of the company because we're focused too much on efficiency.
0: So, how then do you think about the allocation of your budget as an investment as you as you kind of look at both efficiency and then innovation to Suzanne's original point?
2: So you can think about allocation of investment in a couple of different ways. Number one is the the investment needs to produce a return generally this year, right? And 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 most most everybody in your organization has to deal with that, and you need to do with, deal with that too. And so when you show up and talk about brand and we you know the exciting opportunity to be associated with something, it kind of like well, to what end? Now what I will tell you is that if you want to drive the maximum return. The maximum return for your investment over multiple years, and I'm just talking about like two to three years, it takes you to a very different set of allocation activities than it does if you say I want to drive the return in a, in a quarter. And so, as an example, if I want to drive a return this quarter, I will focus on selling products that are already known to existing customers. Uh, Now, you can't grow a business just by focusing on your existing customers Uh, and you have to grow. out. And so you have to think about over a couple of years, what's the right allocation? And so when we look at allocation, it is in the idea of what's the best return for the money. But again, it's not just the percentage return. It is the total dollar return at a reasonable rate.
1: And I would just add that, you know, over the brand to demand spectrum, you know, we're constantly making choices about, um, you know, depending on how the business is performing, right, to um, accelerate and and make those shifts. I think the one thing that has changed pretty dramatically and that I've, you know, learned um, very specifically in my role is that that is a great place to tie in with the other executives is to make that very explicit and known um, and, you know, kind of collectively agree that that's what we need at This moment in time. Um, And that allows for two things, right? It allows for that collaboration with the business. um, And it also allows for, you know, we as marketers to then go do the things that we do, particularly and uniquely well.
0: We have an interesting question from Twitter from Arsalan Khan, who's a regular listener and always asks great questions. So thank you for that, Arsalan. And he says, How do CMOs define innovation? And is the definition different from what IT and the CIO might think innovation to be?
1: I think that there are sort of two things that we think about with respect to innovation. One, we think about meeting our you know clients slash customers where they are and as they're innovating and doing different things. Like, how do we innovate to be able to meet them where they need us to be? Um, And we've certainly seen some very interesting things around, you know, one of our mottos is, you know, you don't go it alone in this world, right? So, so there would be very different things that we're doing today with respect to some of the partnerships and alliances and and the co-collaboration inside and outside our organization. Um, So, certainly, innovation is to uh, respond to both the market needs as well as the things that are truly differentiated about who we are and how can we meet what the client, uh, where, where they're at. Um, the good news about innovation as well in today's um, parlance, in my opinion, is that it also helps the, you know, again, I, I like, Norm, what you said about the return on investment being, you know, a pretty narrow um uh, metric, uh, however, a lot of the digital capabilities um, and innovative ways to deploy some of those assets um, help pretty significantly in that. So that's the other thing that we think about: it is how do we, how are we able to reach more of the market faster?
2: Sometimes people can think of innovation as uh, a new way of doing things, and um, or um, an exciting new thing, whatever that might be. I think the marketers think about it first and foremost through. Um, a better way to solve customer needs, and um, I think it's actually quite easy for big companies to um, to skip that part. To 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 say, here's a thing that I want to do because if we can do it, uh, we make a lot of money, and it's like, okay, well that's great, but do customers want it? <laughs> uh, and you know, and so I think marketers are more likely to think about it for customer in versus what we have out.
0: Is this notion of customer experience? which everybody's talking about and and as a practical matter how much do each of you actually think talk about invest in customer experience and by the way what exactly is it anyhow if a cmo's job
2: is to drive growth and in that equation building a brand is partly how you drive growth then you can look today, and I've done this study multiple times, 75% of a brand is now built through experience. So if a CMO's job is to build the brand, then they better be spending a lot of time on what the experience is. They don't have to own it all, but they need to be working with people about how it becomes a great experience. And, you know, I think so what is an experience? It is very different depending upon the industries. In the service business, it's pretty easy what's the experience. In a product business, it's the usage of the product. But, it, but they can get very different like um, well anyway they, they're just there's a different ways to come at it but I, I do think that you've got a, a digitally enabled consumer low friction of information uh, flying around and if the experience is great terrific and if it's bad then then there's no marketing that's going to cover that up
1: I love what you said earlier as well is about um, you know the, the way I think about customer experience is two things one is as a CMO I can see things that others struggle to see in the business. Um, I can also listen differently. Um, and so really making sure that I contribute those things back to the business um, in a unique way is um, a key part of my role. But to your question about can it be owned by marketing, I think it can be led by marketing. But um, you know, I, always, I always say uh, both in my personal life and my professional life, I say you know, life is lived in the small moments every day. And Because of that, the experience has to be thought about and contemplated through the roles of every part of the organization and the talent experience. Otherwise, you can't ever land an authentic, repeatable um, customer experience that really engenders loyalty with customers.
0: That's such an interesting point, Uh, authentic and repeatable customer experiences that engender Loyalty, and I suspect how you each do that is very, very different because your businesses are so different. So, how do you create repeatable experiences that are authentic that engender loyalty? Yes,
2: I'm actually interested on the uh, like from a Deloitte standpoint. It's it's complex. You've got so many people. By the way, I'm sure they all believe they're super smart and have a great way of doing things. And so, how do you do that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I always, when I'm sitting on panels with B2C um, CMOs, I always say, imagine a world in which your products walked and talked. So you're right, Norm, that it is harder. Like the repeatability to us gets down to um, a certain set of values that we want to make sure are present and a set of um of, of things that are differentiated about who we are and the way we do the work we do. It is not necessarily to make everything a thousand percent, you know, 100% repeatable each and every time. But to be able to do that, and um, I know this is an area that I got some um, responses on, on on LinkedIn when I talked about this talk, is that it does require for us digital innovation. And that digital innovation is really all about making sure that our humans can be more human at the time they really need to be. Um, and and so that's what we're always trying to do is make sure people have um, the information, the um, guideposts that they need to be able to make choices in the moment, and that it's really sort of a value-based um, and responsive uh, because one of the other things that we do believe is that you know this set of complex and new business opportunities presents itself in a slightly unique way, client by client. So it is more about helping our people make choices in the moment than it is. You know, sort of a repeatable meaning exactly the same each and every time.
2: And, you know, I was thinking about this at one point for, uh, actually, think about it still today, but about um, all of our stores. And so, what, you know, what, how do we create the right experience? And I remember thinking about Disney, which is just uh, an organization that, of course, I admire a lot for what they've done. It still continues to be an excellent organization the challenge that I noticed between my organization and Disney was that they have, you know, in the U S two locations and I have 10,000. And so it's just, it's just really hard to get a culture through. Like you could see it in two locations, how you do the onboarding, how you manage people every day. And what's really in a similar way to what you're saying made a difference for us is the idea of uh, purpose. And we can have a long talk about that, but, um, when you create a culture, on uh, similar to your values in a way that of what you what you expect, what you believe, and how you want people to behave, uh, then that's the best you can do. And I I think that actually in a rapidly changing world, that idea creates more unification and delivery of your brand than actually being prescriptive of exactly what to say and do in a moment. I mean, you know, not, not to go too far down this path, but actually if you look at the way the military is changing the way they work, it's, it used to be command and control and now it's very different. And it's, it's, it's all along this idea, know exactly the rules of the road and values and how to operate and be prepared for a a situation that you, you know, you're going to have to make the decisions.
1: And I actually think that was, you know, again, in in a lot of terrible things that happened in times of COVID, I think that muscle really got, you know, um, strengthened because you know norm you would have seen this in spades right things were moving so fast just generally and then specifically by geography and and by you know certain demographics and all that sort of thing that getting comfortable with that notion of um you know things needed to change and it needed to be able to be have decision making in the moment was a, actually a really critical muscle to develop
2: One of the things that COVID did for us that that at the very beginning we really changed is is my role became not just the voice of the customer, but the voice of the employees. So we were doing surveys all the time, figuring out exactly what employees need. We had PPE, uh, you know, protective equipment that we had to get to people. We had to think about our operating procedures, all this stuff, the safety. People felt really stressed going to work. And, uh, and so that we were kind of trying to, we were listening more than ever to our employees and then helping to make changes. I wonder if that was the same for you, uh, given your dispersed workforce.
1: Yeah, it was absolutely the case. And we had to really radically change the way we communicated internally and externally. Um, and one of the things I was most proud of our executive team was that they were really clear from the very beginning about, um, you know, I, I think the, the natural. Um, Tendency is for leaders to speak with authority and conviction. And what our executives did was they spoke with conviction, but they said, We only know what we know today. So we're going to make it as clear as possible, as simple as possible, but do what you need to do and let us know how it reacts. Um, So, Norm, we absolutely did a lot to really listen to our clients and our people.
0: You mentioned the term purpose. I think Norm brought this term up earlier. And it seems evident to me as I hear you both talk that purpose and culture underlie a lot of how you you both think about the world. But this term purpose and purpose-driven has become a buzzword where it sounds really good but it can be very vapid and devoid of meaning. And so what does it actually mean, and how do we bring substance to this concept of being purpose driven?
2: I think it's impossible to be a purpose driven brand. You have to be a purpose driven company. Yeah, and those are fundamentally different. A purpose driven brand can make uh, communications that are compelling and you know tear jerking. They can maybe do CSR activities, which are also good things to do, but that doesn't make you a purpose driven company. And to be a purpose driven company, you need to meaningfully demonstrate your commitment to that purpose in a way that your customers care about and that your employees care about. Uh, and there's a long history about CBS. We don't have to go into that right here about the, the, the moves we've taken. But I, I think that the, the real reason to do it is to drive engagement for your employees, actually. People talk about customers buying from purpose driven brands. And I do think that that's true, but only after your product or service meets their needs. Uh, and so once they meet their needs, then yeah, they might make a choice to buy you. More importantly, demonstrating your commitment to your purpose gives your employees to something to rally around. And by doing that, you drive more engagement. And by driving more engagement, you drive more innovation, which drives more growth for your company.
1: Just two thoughts to add to that, which I think, you know, the whole notion of it's got to be a purpose-driven organization, not brand, I think is absolutely um, spot on. Um, the, the two things that I would add is that, um, you know, purpose is obviously who we are as an organization. And certainly, um, you know, that has become really, really um it's it's always been true, but certainly with the agency that our customers and our people have today, um, they have shown and told us that they're very willing to vote with their, um, you know, their dollars, and and their, um, they'll walk if if they don't believe that that is the case. Um, but just uh, two things that I would say um, that are important about purpose is, you know, one, I always say it's who you are when you think no one's looking. So you really have to embed purpose in everything you do. Um, and lots of those things will be inconvenient. Um, but that really shows who you are and what you believe in um, with with respect to um, the purpose piece of that. And then the second thing I always say is that the CMO is disproportionately in a lot of organizations the voice of purpose, but it does because they they have the uh, responsibility to be a unique window into the organization with what you see. But again, I could not agree with norm Moore. If if every part of the organization doesn't believe in the purpose and know how to express that through the decisions they're making, purpose quickly falls apart. How do
0: you balance? the desire for to be purpose driven against what ultimately has to be some cost associated with that some reduction in your in your profitability some quote unquote wasted money
2: i see purpose as profitably improving the lives of people and improving communities that if you do that if you improve people's lives and you improve communities then i think you can make money at it. And in fact, you know, healthy communities and healthy people drive a lot of uh, purchases. So, so it's good for everyone. Um, you know, the famous one on this front, Michael, is CVS's decision to stop selling tobacco, mm-hmm. which was a sacrifice of $2 billion in annual revenue. So a lot of money that went out the door. Uh, and uh, what we were banking on is that by selling not selling tobacco, we would build the, the, the business where we provide uh, benefits to health plans and hospitals and other companies. And what I would tell you is we, we went down $2 billion in revenue uh, because of that decision. And in the couple of years uh, after that, we went up $16 billion in revenue be, uh, on the, uh, by sh- because we showed our commitment to what was right.
1: I think, too, that it's, um, you know, again, decisions that you will feel good about regardless of the, um, you know, the implication, knowing that we have a business to run. I'll give you an example. At Deloitte, when COVID first hit, um, our executive team, you know, got together and um, basically said, this is a medical, you know, at that point in time with the, re- the response, it was a medical situation initially. Um, and we said, you know, to be honest, our purpose is… Um, is you know to make an impact that matters, and our impact at that point in time was to help our clients and our employees be safe. We couldn't overreach past that; otherwise, we would you know get ourselves into trouble. So we made very specific choices, similar you know norm on a smaller scale. But we helped clients, or um, uh, we helped competitors who were embedded in our clients' operations if they couldn't have the technology capability and connectivity that we could because of choices we'd made about our infrastructure. Because we knew that our purpose was to make sure that people were stronger, faster, right? And so, we were willing to assume any kind of risk and short-term penalty, if you will, um, because we knew that that longer-term, we'd all be collectively stronger. Um, now, as that changed to a response-type environment, then we started saying, okay, our purpose, impact that matters, is to help some of our clients get together in new and in unusual ways in the marketplace. So, we helped some of our hospitality clients who had a lot of call center um, capacity open because of what was going on in their industry lean in with state and local governments to be able to use that call center capacity to get information out to citizens, right? Right. And then ultimately, you know, we think the third phase, which is unfolding right now, is all about thriving. And then our purpose, you know, we do have a very real um, role to play and a significant role to play as we, uh, you know, set to challenge um, the next set of problems and opportunities. So, it is about making decisions on an ongoing, in-the-moment basis with respect to your purpose, and it does lead you into certain actions. But I love the story about, um, you know, CVS, and it took conviction and courage, and I think those things that, those are things that are, um, you know, if you want to be a purpose-driven organization, you have to be able to say that you have courage and you have conviction.
0: It sounds like, for both of you, the idea of Community is foundational to this idea of purpose.
2: I think it is. You
0: know, we spend
2: most of our time at our companies, and yet we choose our homes because we want to be in a community that really reflects uh, what's our values and what's important to us. Well, shouldn't we be selecting a company that does the same thing? Because that is a community. And I do think that people are increasingly choosing their companies because of that. And I think companies have actually done a really good job. I mean, you know, we can all go back to the Edelman Trust Barometer, you know, a few years ago, and companies were terrible, and, uh, you know, uh, nobody trusted them, and uh, and I think they're coming back a bit. And so, uh, because they're demonstrating, you kind of look at like the, the uh, Paris Climate Accord, you know, the government pulled out and the company said, I'm going to do this. Uh, I mean, they really just stood up for what they, what they wanted to do, which I thought was really interesting. And I was thinking about this. Suzanne, when you were talking, because I was thinking, I bet you that the purpose at Deloitte helps create a community of values that people feel proud of, and it helps with retention and engagement.
1: Absolutely. We did um, our 2021 marketing trends report, which we do, you know, every year. And that came out very loudly and clearly is that, you know, people trust is so paramount for people today. And they're just willing um, to vote either positively or negatively in that environment with both the companies that they choose to work you know, work for, and um, customers are more than willing to reward or penalize companies that they don't believe reflect the values that they want to see in the world.
2: Yeah, and the interesting thing about the values at companies, you know, because, you know, take take our two companies, they're so large, and because we not only have to recruit from a huge, you know, uh, population, we also have to serve huge populations. It actually takes us to a set of values that are – that are reflective of kind of mainstream uh, America in a way, in a, in, a, in a good way, I think. You know, not too extreme in either direction, and and I think that that's uh, that's just really interesting. It's what's made many companies leaders in their um, in their industry.
0: We have a, a really interesting question from Twitter from Elizabeth Shaw, who says, "How can marketing and the CMO be a catalyst for change in the company, not just for?" Uh, defining products and services, but actually helping drive change in the organization.
2: I went down a project a few years ago and I completely underestimated what cha- how important change management was. I didn't I didn't even underestimate it. I undervalued it. <laughs> I was like, we're just gonna get it done. Uh, and uh, so lucky for me, I was working with um, some people who were really helpful at helping me understand what was needed. And so think about what is really required for change management. Listening why you know what what's going on how do you feel about this what would be important to you how can we make it better for you and then communications again and again and again why are we doing this Uh, where are we headed how what progress have we made made and you know you simply can't over communicate and change management and i just think that that's actually core to what the skill set is of marketing and we can communicate in a way That sometimes is more emotionally resonant, which we know, which we know drives memorability, Uh, and so that's helpful. I I think that they're very closely connected.
1: Yeah, and I think it's why digital and analytics/slash insight have become such a big part of the CMO role is that we can listen and engage differently and you know, complementary ways to what the rest of the business does. So part of the role of the CMO is making sure. And Norm mentioned it earlier. Um, In our conversation, right, is really bringing this outside in. Um, And I do think, again, in COVID, many of us learned how to listen to our people very significantly as well. And so those are things that we want to make sure we do on an ongoing basis.
0: Suzanne raises something of a paradox for me because she was just describing the the power of listening through digital. But is there also a concern that digital creates a disconnect and a gap with the real people because you're taking the tracks, the analytics, and the data? But what about interactions
1: with people? Well, the thing I always say about um, digital is if you do it the right way, it actually makes sure that your people have the time and the space and the tools to do what they do best, which is to be human. Right. So it's not about stripping the humanity out of your operations or your storytelling or whatever the case might be. Right. It is all about making sure that when you're physically present with someone, with the customer, that you have all of the necessary tools, insight, information to be able to be very, very responsive in a very human way, um, to have all of, of the empathetic response that you can.
2: I love that. You know, a good example for this is. Our pharmacists in our stores—we're uh, deploying uh, digital for consumers to order their prescriptions online. Uh, we're, you know, home delivery. We're deploying tools and technology for the in the pharmacies, and it's also that we can free up the pharmacists so that they can have conversations with the most vulnerable patients, and and, and because we know that that can have a lot of impact. So I, I think it's a great example.
0: Susanna alluded to this earlier which is work is changing and life is changing. And so where do you see the world going over the next, you know, pick a time, six months, year? And what are the impacts on your business and how you think about the CMO role and what your activities and investments will be?
1: We're doing a lot of work um, and thinking right now about um, what we're calling um, reimagining the experience, right? And, And what we're saying is that in a world in which you have choice between what is done digitally, virtually, or physically, how do we help people make those right choices, And, you know, it's interesting because COVID obviously was a very, very hard time and had, um, you know, disproportionate impact on various geographies and populations. And that will be true for the next, you know, we believe it will be true in some way, shape or form for, for probably at least the next two years. So making those choices is an interesting, you know, kind of balance, um, And I would say that what, you know, some of the things that we're trying to experiment with, one of the things that was wildly positive about a 100% virtual environment was the impact on our people and their personal lives. So the ability to be home more and to be present. Um, And also the inclusivity of a virtual world, right? All of a sudden, you could have many more people that weren't constrained by geography or, you know, access or availability participate in things um, you know we have all kinds of conversations that people could drop in and out of in a much more significant way than they could um, in a physical world So how do you make sure that you pull the thread on making sure that those advantages continue? but balanced with the fact that, as humans, one of the things that we do exceptionally well are really build deep, trusted relationships. So That's the way we're thinking about it, Michael, is what absolutely needs to be done to unlock kind of that human potential and that trust, very specifically, in a physical world, but how do you make sure that you some of the things that we're very positive about being entirely virtual persists on an ongoing basis?
0: Norm, I have to imagine that for you, the change in the world is your reactions will be very different from Suzanne's in terms of the the activities because your businesses are so different.
2: Somewhat, but I I do love that example, Suzanne, about the meetings. I mean, you know, remember uh, there used to be, uh, you know, how many people do we really need in this meeting? Is that too many people? There used to be a lot of thinking about that. Uh, You know, why are the meetings always so big? I mean, you know, with Zoom, where nobody talks about it at all. It's like, who cares if there's extra windows on? You know, it's fine for people to hear about this stuff. We're just going to have a conversation. And it's really true. It's made a huge difference. And it's really helpful for those people to hear the conversation live, which I think creates less telephone tag, you know, mm-hmm. of actually what, what the decision was. So I think that's a really good example. I, I think very much very similarly, you know, I, it, COVID helped us to realize the power of the human connection. Mm -hmm. You know, as we didn't see our grandparents, as we didn't see our friends, and we became really, really aware of how much we valued that. It also made us aware of how digital can make our lives so easy. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, we kept ordering stuff online and, you know, uh, and so everybody started going more digital. And so what I think we're going to see Going forward is that combination of uh, that realizes the power of the human connection and the convenience of digital. And you can see it, uh, I think, in the in the workplace as people go back to work. Everybody's working on what's the hybrid model that makes the most sense. Nobody knows the exact answer. We'll evolve our way through here. But uh, but that even that model to, to your your Susan, like it's just going to be less stressful because I can actually be home sometimes for my kids' teachers' meeting and the kids practice tonight. And I can be at work and I don't feel like I'm missing a beat either way. So I think that's really, really good. And by the way, better for the uh, climate. Uh, the um, Then you think about health and what's really happening with health. I mean, we saw a rise in telehealth people. There was this kind of like fringe thing called telehealth that all of a sudden people thought, well, maybe it's okay to use. It seems like a little bit more mainstream and that's really going to grow. Uh, but I also think, People really want the in person meeting with their healthcare practi- practitioner because a human being that cares about you is a very powerful thing. Uh, and so I, we're going to see this combination go forward. It wasn't just about the acceleration in digital, which we've all talked about. It was actually about the acceleration in digital and the power of the human connection that we all realized.
0: So Arsalan Khan comes back and he says CMOs alone. Can't change the organization. Who do you need to partner with to make your organizations better?
1: So, the simple answer is yes. And I would say every member of the C suite, but you have to have stronger collaboration, in my opinion, with the uh, EU presidents. Um, and that is a really um, important relationship.
0: What is an experience platform? And to what degree will experience versus Ad platforms be part of the CMO strategy. Okay, so now we're really drilling, drilling, drilling into the weeds here.
2: Experience platform is typically thought of in the digital space as a place that creates the experiences for whatever that company wants to deliver, either uh, you know, service order prescriptions or it could be engagement of sort, some sort. And Generally, it's a technology platform that can customize some content based on what it knows about uh, people. Uh, the uh, the CMO uh, uh, needs to have a big role in the evolution of that experience platform to really deliver for consumers. But I think the CMOs, most CMOs, should also realize that there's a skill set required that isn't in their organization and isn't in necessarily the technology organization either. That there are hybrid people called digital people that that understand how to deploy technology that creates great experiences.
1: Norm, the thing I would add onto that, which which was fabulous, is is that the then that re, that gives you a lot of insight. It's a you know I call it digitally listening yeah. to what because you can see customers directly interact and what they want and what they find useful and what they you know don't necessarily want. Um, and again, not not uh, I'm not veering into the directly attributed to a specific individual, but generally um, with respect to audiences. And the CMO does have a responsibility to make sure the rest of the business understands um, that feedback.
0: We didn't talk about metrics. How do you evaluate the success of a CMO? I, I'm gonna
2: give you three. Uh, growth of the company, driven by marketing, uh, team and capabilities, and skills, and have you left the company better off than it was before you got there? I love that.
1: The only one I would add is engagement and loyalty.
0: And along those same lines, why is there so much turnover among CMOs? I was looking at some stats and there's pretty high turnover in the CMO role.
2: An evolution in skill sets required to be CMOs and uh, CEOs not always knowing that there are you know there are multiple types of CMOs. Suzanne and I are two different breeds of the same same thing. And CEOs don't always know that or what they're looking for. So I think getting some good advice when they're looking to hire a CMO would be helpful.
1: The thing I would add is just CMOs have to be able to speak um, to their superpowers in a way that the CxO audience can hear it.
0: What are those superpowers?
1: Oh, I think creativity, I think customer, um, you know, engagement and loyalty, I think, you know, really making sure that the um, the value um, and the engagement of your internal population for those CMOs that own internal comms, um, you know, all of those sorts of things that particularly the creative storytelling and the digital innovation are huge things that the CMO uniquely brings to the table. I think, you know, in today's world, brand, reputation, and risk are things that are of you know, the top of the board agenda and certainly of the C suite. And those are all things that are better understood, you know, typically by the CMO than other executives.
0: And let me ask each of you the same question to finish up that I think is an important one. Uh, Norm, let me start with you. What advice do you have for other CMOs who are navigating periods of rapid change and trying to innovate during? those turbulent times.
2: Have a vision for where you want to go so that you don't get (laughs) pivoted all over the place during this change.
0: Suzanne, you're going to get the last word on that same topic.
1: I think be clear about where the biggest difference you can make and make sure that that's well-known throughout the organization.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much. We've been speaking with Suzanne Kunkel and Norm DeGrev of CVS Health, and Suzanne is from is the CMO of Deloitte. Thank you both so much for taking time to speak with us today, and thank you to everybody who was listening. Thank you both.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Wendy.
0: Everybody, thank you for watching. Before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website. We have great shows coming up. Check out CXOTalk.com and we'll see you again very, very soon.